While you're getting in your places there, if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Titus chapter 3. Many years ago, I was in the city of Paris, France, and one of the ways that you get around in Paris really well is in the subway system. And their subway system is really complex to an outsider. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a labyrinth. It's very, it's several different layers, of course, all underground. And you have to kind of work your way through that and learn to use some of the maps and, and those types of things. But one of the things that happened to me as I was going down there trying to find the train that I was supposed to get on, I, I heard this beautiful music coming. And it wasn't on an intercom. It was kind of wafting up through the tunnels. And I thought, where is that coming from? And so that became more, more of my search than even the subway after a while. It was just kind of entranced, entranced me. And I, I walked through different places and down and up and finally came and it, it was getting louder and louder. And I came around the corner and here was just this simple young lady sitting there with a cello playing down in the bottom parts of the Paris subway system. And that music was just going all over the lower parts of France. It was beautiful. And this morning, as we come to the scriptures that we're looking at, there's a lot of things that, that we will see here, and some that I won't cover as well as could be covered as thoroughly. But you see the music of the gospel spreading out to the people of God. And you can hear it, and you can see it in them as they live. And this morning's passages are like the mother load of the gospel in many ways. We, we, we see how people are living. Paul tells us that. How are they are supposed to live. How we used to live. And then he comes to the source of what makes that happen. And I pray that we'll be able to see that source for what it is. It's magnificent. I, I certainly cannot do it justice. But may the Holy Spirit work in us through his word to teach us and lead us to who he is. Paul has spent really most of this letter so far telling Titus to tell the Cretans how they are to live. He has explained how church leaders are to behave, how older men, older women, young men and young women, slaves and free men should conduct themselves. He has addressed family and church behavior. And in verses 1 and 2 this morning, he covers Christian conduct toward those in authority and in general public settings. And the motivation for living like this has so far been, first of all, that the Word of God may not be blasphemed or dishonored, that, that God's Word will be lifted and seen as valid, as true. Secondly, that the doctrine of God may be adorned. That means it may be made beautiful by the lives of these people. But in a moment, we will see one of the most beautiful and powerful revelation in all of Scripture as to why Christians are to live differently from the lost men and women around them. Let's pray that God will see it, teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we, I come to you again and I thank you for the Word of God. And I pray that you will open it up to our hearts and minds this morning. We cannot see anything. We cannot understand one syllable if your spirit doesn't speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would overcome my weaknesses and inabilities and your spirit would just move in the hearts of all of us to see God, to follow you, to know you, to be convicted, to be exhorted, to be encouraged, to be comforted, but to know and walk with you. In Jesus' name, I pray. We continue in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Life for one who loves God. Here we have direction given by God for living. The first word we see there is remind. It tells us that this is not the first time the Cretans have heard this. Paul wants Titus to drive it again, drive it down into their hearts and their minds. And we need that. 
You will hear the gospel shared over and over again. You will hear commands from scripture repeated by us as we preach. But, but it's because it's repeated throughout scripture. And Paul says remind them of these things. First of all be subject to rulers and authorities. Be subject in submission to human authorities both governmental and family. Paul writes about this in Romans 13. The Apostle Peter covered much the same in 1 Peter chapter 2. You see these Cretans as we've looked so far already were a very unsavory lot. They were unruly. It was important that they not resume their former lives or that they assume the behavior of their countrymen. They are different now because of Christ. Guthrie surmised that Paul evidently fears that the turbulent Cretans might too readily implicate the church in political agitation, which could only bring the gospel under suspicion. In other words, they would be prone to raise a stink and ruin the purity of the gospel. And so he's pressing this home. Be in subjection to those who rule over you. Now one of the first things we will want to do is what is the exception to that? But that is not what we're about here. It is giving us this instruction. Make that our inclination. Whether it's speed limits, whether it's codes, whether it's father's directions, whether whatever it might be, teachers, those that have been placed in the authority by God over us, let us be subject to them. We know that that, that doesn't mean that we would be subject to them over our subjection to Christ. He must rule. We must seek Him. Sometimes that's difficult to understand where that begins and where that ends. But let this be our first inclination that we be, would be subject to those in authority over us. Obey. Titus, tell them to obey and be ready for every good work. God's Word, it says, thoroughly equips us for every good work. But here Paul urges them to even be ready. Be eager for every good work. Like one of my coaches used to tell me, let's get after it. Don't hang back. Look for those opportunities. And when there is a good work that can be fulfilled, go for it. Let you be the first one to be at that line. Speak of evil of no one. It's the word blasphemeo. What would we get from that? We get the word blaspheme. It means to vilify or to revile. We don't slander, we don't vilify publicly or privately. Not on Facebook, not in online comment sections, not in conversation about neighbors or leaders or that guy that get, just cut you off in traffic. We don't slander. I admit to you that as much as in any recent time, the Lord kept convincing me of this and bringing it to my mind over and over again in certain situations. We don't want to be those kind of people. It does not reflect the Christ whom we serve. It goes on to say be peaceable. God's people are not to be contentious or quarrelsome. Be gentle. Hendrickson defines that as eager to help the needy, kind to the weak, considerate toward the fallen. And then he says, showing all humility to all men. Now that's comprehensive. Is that you with your work crew? Is that with you with the children at home? Is that with you with the neighbors or the guys on your team? Are you showing all humility to all men? Hendrickson again poked at this and he says, showing some humility toward some people, that might not be so difficult. Nor showing all humility to some people or some humility to all people. But to show all humility to all people, even to all those Cretans, liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, that was an assignment impossible of fulfillment apart from God's special grace. But that is who we are to be, to show the graciousness of who the God is that we serve and we know. After covering Christian living, though, Paul carefully sets up what I would call here a retrospective time mirror for the Cretans. Do not forget, he says, don't forget, this is who you once were. 
Rather than show utter contempt toward lost men and women around you, show great compassion. Remember, you were who they are. And some of you fairly recently. Is that not our kind of what we fall back on so quickly when we see things happening in our culture? How could they ever do such a thing? What are they, why are they so blind to this? Can you believe the gall? Can you believe uh, the per- perversion, the depravity of that person? Paul says, we ourselves were also once. That's who we were. Compassion, not contempt, is what we need. Life here is when one didn't know God. These are the conditions of the dead man. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Never forget where you came from. Not out of pride, but to remember the change that only God can make. You see, a gratitude toward our Heavenly Father and a compassion toward lost men will grow out of reflection on our past. And, and look how Paul writes this. We ourselves once were. Paul includes himself absolutely in this gang of former perpetrators. And I do too. How about yourself? Can you remember? Do you see who you once were? Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. George Whitfield, when witnessing a condemned man going to the gallows, exclaimed, There before the grace of God go I. We were foolish. We were without understanding. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. You believe that there was a God? Well, perhaps this was your issue. Romans 1, 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. But became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, They became fools. We were disobedient to both divine and human authority, government, parental, workplace. And Adam and Eve began this path of destruction for us. Satan taunted Eve, you will be your own God. You will be like God. Don't be fooled. We see it all the time in conversation with those refusing Absolutely refusing the very thought of surrendering their will and independence to a sovereign God. I will not do it, they say. Not now. Not that much. They will. We were deceived. What that means is to stray away. To be seduced. We were easy prey. Prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Then he says, We served various lusts and pleasures. And most clearly this can be translated as we were enslaved. We were trapped. Acts 7 says we were in bondage. Romans 6, slaves to sin. Romans 16, Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. Galatians 4, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. And what were the masters of these slaves that Paul speaks of? Wicked longings and sensual delights. Many of us know exactly What being in that bondage was like. Some of us still struggle in sanctification to come completely out from underneath that bondage. Don't let that be your master. Then he says malice and envy. Again we look at Romans 1. Romans 1, 28 and 29. And I would encourage you if you have not spent much time there. Do so. 
it will give you a wide open view of what is happening in the culture around us. It explains it. Romans 1.28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, a broken mind, a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy. Malice, it's the worthless, depraved way of living. The list of Romans, the list of rebellion in Romans 1 goes on to speak of inventors of evil things. These are malicious people, evil people, thinking of evil things. We could sit here and probably list on and on what have been invented as far as evil goes in the last decade. Things that we never dreamed of. This is the culture, the world in which we live. Envy. You look with hatred and contempt at someone who has what you want. Whether that could be status, that could be a home, that could be uh, a spouse, it, it could be how your children are. You wish this, that, you want that. You envy that. Hendrickson wrote this, it, it was envy which caused the murder of Abel. Threw Joseph into a pit. Caused Korah, Dothan, and Abiram to rebel against Moses and Aaron. It made Saul pursue David. Gave rise to the bitter words which the elder brother addressed to his father. And crucified Christ. We were hateful. And it's interesting that word actually means sort of the object of hate. We were detestable. We were odious. We were repulsive. Literally it means we would shudder with horror. People would at who we were. And then it says hating one another. And hating one another goes on with the idea of persecution. You would not simply ignore or disdain someone. It was necessary that you must pursue painful and destructive harm to them. Hateful, hating one another. That's who we were. We talked this morning about what's going on in Haiti. Pray for them. Pray for these young men who are overrunning that culture. As Jim had shared, in their thir early teens, 13, 14 year old boys. And this is their life. And this is how they live. Such were some of you. Maybe not in the same degree, the same method and means, but every bit is capable. We go to, to what is happening in India. And where it's being over, overrun by these Hindu nationalists that want to, to remove the vestiges of not only Christianity, but also Islam. We could be, in many ways, we are just like them before Christ. Remember this. In Ezekiel, the old prophet, in chapter 36 says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. You will loathe yourself. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, were what? Well, he says, you were fornicators, you were idolaters, you were adulterers, you were homosexuals, you were sodomites, you were thieves, you were covetous, you were drunkards, you were revilers, you were extortioners. That was the church. Men and women that had been those things. You see, the true body of Christ is made up of bad people. Wicked people that Christ looked down upon with great mercy and love. Rather than resent, this is a quote from, from MacArthur, rather than resent and slander unbelieving leaders, educators, the media, and people in the entertainment industry, and rather than becoming incensed and venomous in our attacks on the immoral agendas of various organizations and movements, we should remember that we also once were like those whom we now are inclined to defame and condemn. We were once just like them and would still be like them if it were not for the saving grace of God which alone delivered us. End quote. 
Phillips asked this question. When we ourselves needed to be saved, did God give us what we deserved? I want you to take a moment here for some retrospection. The Oxford Dictionary defines retrospection as the action of looking back on or reviewing past events or situations, especially those in one's own life. And seriously, seriously, I want us to take a moment and remember very honestly who you were in the deep, dark crevices of your own life before Christ saved you, if you are a follower of Christ. You don't have to write it down, or your neighbor or your child may want to have a lot more questions about it. But I do want you to think, and I will take just a couple of minutes now, and and I would ask us to bow our heads, and I do want you to remember, think back about who you once were before we get into this next phase of the scriptures. So let's take a minute. Okay, that is the way it was. Verse 4. But, as we've often said, that's one of the most significant words in the Greek language. So we speak it in English, but. But, it's a contrast. Things are different at this point. But when, there's a timing here. But when, the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. It is the turning point of life. It is God's loving kindness. The motivation of salvation here is given to us that it is the loving kindness of God. Paul had given a sample of this in Titus chapter 2 just a little bit earlier. He said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now Paul here is talking about a literal event, not just some concept. There was a very specific day and year in the history of the world when the kindness and love of God quite literally appeared. It was announced by Isaiah when he wrote in Isaiah chapter 9, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And about that event, it was recalled by Paul in his letter to the Galatians as he looks back and he says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Everything changed at that moment. This event is called an appearing. Last week we talked about that. It's the Greek word epiphanio. And it means, it's the word we, where we get epiphany. It's the emerging. It's the encompassing of light. John describes Jesus as this light. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Luke echoes Isaiah's prophecy 700 years before he lived and he declares the arrival of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He says, Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring, Christ from on high has visited us to give light. It's that same word, appearing. The epiphanio. It is the appearing of light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's where we were. That is where we were. We were in darkness and, and hardly can we grasp that. John wrote that in his day, 2,000 years ago, many could actually see, touch, and hear the loving kindness of God, our Savior. 
He described his arrival. He said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It was the loving kindness of God. That is a compound word, philanthropia. Philo or philo is love. Anthropology, anthropia is man. God's love for man appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. His arrival was absolutely crucial for the eternity of every man and woman in this room. Do you understand that? Your destiny for the next million, trillion, billion beginning years of eternity rested upon the fact that this man came. Every man and woman on this planet, every man and woman that has appeared throughout the history of mankind. God must act before salvation occurs, attests the SV Study Bible. And this He did when His loving kindness appeared. He acted. But it did not arrive as expected, is what Titus, the book of Titus tells us here. Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, it was not by works. And, and we've heard that so many times. We take it for granted and we think we got it. In those days it would have made utterly no sense. Because that's what they stood on in the days of Paul. That was their, their way of trying to have some sort of hope for the future. That they could keep the law. And somehow their works of righteousness might, might somehow render them in favor of God. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any should boast. Galatians 2. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe? If you believe in Jesus Christ you are saved. Or believing gets you started. And then you kind of clean it up and you live a certain way, then you're saved. No, if you believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, you are saved by faith. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And then 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. I think sometimes we stumble here and we yes, it's by grace that we are saved. And, and kind of with the inclination, because God knows what we will be like after that moment. No. He saved us because of His mercy. Now I ask you, why were men's works so feeble and impotent? They can look quite impressive. Why were they so feeble and impotent? Isaiah boldly declares, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Our best works outside of Christ are filthy, smelly rags. But that kindness and love of God appeared according to mercy. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We did not, we, we did not receive what justice required for the wages of sin is death. We did not receive what justice required. Why? Because of God's mercy. Mercy does not evade. Mercy does not impair. Mercy does not disable justice. Mercy fulfills justice by sacrificing its own life for the one who is condemned. 
Why? Because justice's requirement of death was met by another, the Son of God. It was met by another. You and I were on the block to be executed and condemned forever. And Christ took our place, stepped in the way, and took our sin. Late, late last night, early this morning, this scripture was brought to my mind and my heart as I was reading. Psalm 5, verse 5 through 8. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the blood, bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Written by a man who was a filthy, adultering, lying murderer. But who had experienced the grace of God. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Through the Holy Spirit here we see two workings in the process of salvation. Look carefully with me at these that are given to us. Now I want you to please remember, there is mystery when it comes to eternal and infinite workings of God. Some that we cannot begin to fathom. Because we are mortal and God is immortal. Some that I couldn't begin to teach very well. And even if I taught it, could teach it very well. We couldn't grasp. Because it it is in many ways beyond what we can grasp here. It's much of it we cannot quite get a hold of. How could this be? What really happens? What literally happens when a man is transformed from condemnation of death to eternal life? How can it be? Well, this is what God tells us about that. He said there is a washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not an allusion to baptism. Although you may come across that explanation at times. The washing described here is completely spiritual. This act of washing is the work of the Holy Spirit. It purifies the one whom He washes. Look back with me again to Ezekiel chapter 36. And we will see what the Holy Spirit's washing is doing in light of the new covenant that God gave. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. God will do that. His Holy Spirit will do that. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Praise God. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. This is the Holy Spirit's purifying work of regeneration. Regeneration means to be reborn, rebirth, born again. It is sometimes called conversion. Remember the Pharisee Nicodemus. Once secretly he came to Jesus in the dark of night and he came to find out who this teacher really is. Now during their conversation Jesus told Nicodemus that if you ever want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. At that moment, Nicodemus was dumbfounded. When Jesus was talking about here was regeneration. Now, the question comes, why is rebirth or regeneration needed? Because you're dead. The scriptures tell us you are dead. And unless you are reborn, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not see life. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. 
and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. A little further it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Here we go again. The motivation of God. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This regeneration occurs, it must occur prior even to our faith. For we are dead in our sins, we are unable to comprehend or respond to God until He breathes life into us. Then as Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, God gives us the gift of faith by which we are then enabled to believe on Him. Burkhoff describes regeneration. He says, It is the act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man. The governing disposition of the soul is made holy. And the first holy exercise of this new disposition is secured. The second operation of the Holy Spirit is the renewing. The renewal. The Holy Spirit renews men and women when they are brought from spiritual death to life in Christ. This word is like the word remodeling or renovation. It's like renovating a building or in this case the renovation of our lives to God's desired design. He has a plan set for you and he will fulfill it. Guthrie wrote, regeneration points to the act of entering a new life while renewal marks the quality of that new life. Renewal points to the whole process of making new. Renewing is a spiritual concept of sanctification. In it we are changed through the original sanctifying work of God. You see, God sets us apart when we are first saved. We are sanctified. Then throughout our lives, He continues to set us apart for His glory as He shapes our hearts and lives to be like His Son, Jesus Christ. We are sanctified. Then we are continually being sanctified. And one day in the future, He will complete that change of our lives and we will be thoroughly sanctified when we are brought into the presence of our God in glory. Again, Burkhoff says, Sanctification is that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which He delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews His whole nature in the image of God, and enables Him to perform good works. Paul goes on in verse 6. He says, Whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, the Holy Spirit does not work alone here, but He is actually brought forth from the Savior of salvation, Jesus Christ. This is a description, as we read right here, of overflowing, lavish giving of God the Father. He is giving through His Son, Jesus Christ, from whom the Holy Spirit pours forth. And this is not just a little dribble out of the tap to get us by. This is the idea of, of a torrent being poured out upon us by Jesus Christ of the Holy Spirit. Philip says, God the Father as the planner and initiator, Jesus Christ the Son as the agent of redemption, the Holy Spirit as the instrument of regeneration and renewal. We see the threefold person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work in our salvation. And verse says, 7 says that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This should, this should, we should all be sitting on the edge of our seats, pouring over this, if we could understand the depth and magnitude of what we're talking about. And my apologies, I am inadequate to give it what it should be given. May the Spirit teach us here. The hope of salvation is eternal life. We are justified. We are justified by Christ. That means we are made righteous in order that we may be accepted by the perfect and holy God. You don't have a chance before God if you come on your best day. But Christ has given us His perfect righteousness. You see, in order to leave no doubt and to show the conflict between the idea of grace and works, Paul often sets them at odds. He sets them in opposition to each other. Being saved by grace, 
God's complete, gracious, full adoption of us as his children. Being saved by grace versus earning or deserving favor before God because of any discipline or conformity to the law by us. These are extreme opponents. In fact, one is an absolute miracle. The other is an utter impossibility. Romans 11 verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. This is even made more clear in Romans 4 verse 4, Now to him who works, works for his salvation, the wages are not counted as grace, but they're counted as debt, as if God owed you something because of your works. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. What did he do? He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul here, Philippians chapter 3. He has just given a, a list of his distinctions, and he says, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Christ has not only made us legally right before God, but you see, we are also made family. We are not just there because we have been made righteous, but we are made heirs. In fact, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ in Romans 8. The glory of being heirs of God. Romans 8 verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Galatians chapter 3 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are His children. And then finally, we see the glory of that inheritance. It is eternal life. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, there it is again, that mercy has begotten us. He's given birth to us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. It is an inheritance described as incorruptible and undefiled. That does not fade away. And is reserved in heaven for you. You don't want it reserved anywhere on earth. It is reserved in heaven. And you can count on it. So what do you make of this? Really, what do you make of this? John Newton a slave himself, then a heartless slave trader, and eventually a repentant abolitionist of slavery, authored the hymn Amazing Grace. And he said in his later years, I know two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Our final verse says, that we must be reminded. It says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Yes, we, we need to be told what to do, but we also must know why we do it and the source of the beautiful music of good works. This message of the glorious and the glorious and grace-filled gospel is to be constantly demonstrated in our lives. We saw how. But it's also to be pouring forth from our lips. Because of this glorious gospel, and in order that it might be rightly proclaimed, we must fulfill even what Hebrews 10 says. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We're going to have fellowship 
right after this? What are we going to do with this? Are we going to stir up each other toward love and good works? That's why we're to gather. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. There are some that, that are struggling and honestly I'm begging them, be here. You need to be with the brethren. Share your lives with them. And we who are here need to share our lives with each other. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is this manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I want to finish with a demonstration of much of this principle in the book of Acts chapter 16. I think it embodies a lot of what kind of people the Cretans were, how Paul says you're to respond, and then centered around the glorious gospel. Acts 16, verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and were singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. You know where they're at, right? Their comrades are called what? Prisoners. So, Rocket science tells us they're in prison. These guys are in prison. And what are they doing? They are praying and singing hymns to God. And others are listening to them. What a stage for the glory of God to be presented. Don't don't shy back from those stages. Don't avoid them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prisons of foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed wow man and the keeper of the prison awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open supposing the prisoners had fled drew his sword and was about to kill himself This, this jailer probably was no sweetheart. And his job was no nine to five air conditioned comfort place. He took care of prisoners in an ugly, dirty, filthy dungeon. Most of them hated his guts. If he turned around and didn't see what was happening, his life could be over. He was probably a hard man. We don't know a lot about it. And he's ready to kill himself with his sword. What would you have done if you were Paul? Get it over with, buddy. I need to go preach the gospel. A wicked, ugly man. But Paul knew who he had been. And he cries out to the man and says, and with a loud voice, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. What was going on in the mind of that jailer? They're here and they don't want me to hurt myself. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, what brought him to say this? He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your household. The opportunity arose because of the demonstration of their lives. And the love and the compassion of Christ in the hearts of Paul brought him to give the proper response. For he knew who he had been, and he knew the magnificent thing that God had done in his life to bring him salvation. Who knows where you will be this week? And what sort of injustice may fall your way? Unkindness, neglect, being hated by others. We don't know. Maybe it will be the very difficult things, the same old, same old, and being steadfast. But may we remember this glorious gospel. May we keep our eyes on the future 
inheritance that we have been given for you are heirs if you have trusted in Christ. And if, and if you sit here and have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, why? You see what this offers? I know why. But at the same time, why? The scriptures say we are to be compelled to beg you to come to Christ. And I ask you, leave the old life and come and know Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of men like Paul and Silas, for your spirits writing through him to the faithful man Titus in Crete. Lord, I thank you for the Cretans, how you took these men and women with such reputations of wickedness and you made them beautiful into a church. Father, please work in this church. Work in the church in this city and and in this nation, your church in the world, that you would be glorified. Lord, help us, grant us great courage that we would consider ourselves dead to this world and alive to Christ. Lord, bless the moms at home who in obscurity and fatigue and great challenges diligently raise those children to know you. Bless the husbands and fathers who lead and serve those homes, who give direction, Lord. Bless our men, single and married, as they go into these different workplaces with many challenges. Lord, I couldn't tell everybody's situation, students, workers, whatever it might be. Lord, but but make us ambassadors for Christ as though you were pleading through each one of our mouths to be reconciled to God. And Lord, help us that we would walk in obedience to your word, that our lives would carry the aroma of Christ. For you are worthy. You are worthy for eternity. Prepare us for that, Father. In your name I pray. Amen.